Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. My brethren. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a GDP Minute. It feels good to be back in podcast boy mode. You know what I'm saying? Host mode. Entertainment mode. Because I've been in fucking dog mode for months now. And um, at the conclusion of this opening, I'm going to be releasing an episode with Killian Dunn. Now, today's episode with Killian is all about his new book, Death by a Million Paper Cuts. Go on Amazon, buy it, support the kid. Let me tell you something about Killian. I brought him up a gazillion times on this podcast, and he's actually, we interviewed him once too. Um, Dude, Killian is my right-hand man out here. As soon as I got to LA, he was the first person I ever really bonded with. Him and I have done all of our events together. We talk four times a day. He's my fucking partner in crime, and he wrote the next GDP movie. We did that together right at the end of Apple Cinema. And he's just a fucking pit bull, man. He's really driven. Like, when you think of writers and creative types, at least in my experience, you think of fucking introverted nerds. He's the opposite. He's a super socially confident guy. Um, he's really, he's good at selling himself. He's good at pitching himself. And um, I really do believe in him wholeheartedly. I've told him this before too. I think the only thing holding him back right now is fucking boozing. I think if he can cut out the boozing, I think he's going to be absolutely unstoppable in Hollywood. I mean, I think he's going to win a fucking Oscar. He just has all the personality traits of someone who has to be successful in any industry. And then on top of it, his product is good. He's a good writer. Um, He and I are developing the next GDP movie together, which I'll have updates on soon. Essentially, all that's been going on with that is we've been fucking having meetings and figuring out our plan of attack. But with that being said, um, this whole podcast is about Killian's book. Please go get it on Amazon. It's called Death by a Million Paper Cuts. Search that and you'll hear a little bit more about um, Killian's process in writing the book, what the book's about and everything about it. So enjoy. Love you guys. See you soon. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Enter, just, you forgot to enter. Boom, and just like that, we are caught deep within the simulation. And it's been quite some time since myself and the man of honor today have actually been on the mic and in the snake pit like this in podcast format. But I feel like we're going to pick it up very quickly. Now, Kill, do you mind if I just kind of preface the podcast as we used to do? Go for us. Okay, before we move on, I introduced our guest, who I just lightly introduced. Who else is in the room with us today? Who's engineering the episode? Sebastian. Zorro Jr. over there. Who we got over here? Fresh off the motherfucking boat. Welcome to the Snake Pit, brethren. Now... I was just telling our guest today, the man of honor, it's going to be quite hard for me to uh, to make this episode not about myself because uh, I have a hard time being selfless at points and um, I love entertaining. But today it's all about you, man. And I just want to say, I do think you and I are going to reflect looking back on this recording when we're like 80 and be like, damn, we were at our pinnacle hotness at that moment. Like, take a look at this recording. You're looking handsome as hell, bro. Yeah, we're looking good. This is a nice little boost. No, I was just looking at the photos of you from the event, and I was like, damn, Kill's, like, kind of hitting his prime right now. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. (laughs) I'm feeling good. Now, today we're here to talk about Killian Dunn's brand new book, Death by a Million Paper Cuts. And it's not necessarily brand new. When was the exact release date? And that's kind of just what we're going to discuss all day today is Kill has poured his heart and soul into this book specifically, and he's been hustling it. He's been getting on a bunch of different podcasts, and we just want to use today as kind of um, just like a freeform vessel for him to talk about the book, creating the book, what the book's about. That way we can sell the book a little bit more and maybe get him some better opportunities to sell the book on a, a more national scale. Yep. That's what, that's what we're here for. So Liam, if we lose track, you just put your hand up and say, dude. You're being a selfish motherfucker. Yeah, I got you. All right, thank you, man. Okay, so first off, let's just talk about when the book was released, when you started it, what it's about. Give us a quick overview. Cool. So the book was released on October 7th, 2022. 
So from now the day that we're shooting the podcast to then, it's been about three and a half months. The book itself, I first started writing us January 2022. So it's been a little while working on us. I essentially, to give you a backstory on the book, this is a true story. Names, dates, and places have been fictionalized, but the actual content of the book is completely true. Um, the story itself is a Spotlight story. So if you're familiar with the movie Spotlight, after that team at the Boston Globe investigated the Catholic Church, they investigated boarding schools in New England. Now, I was put in touch with this woman who was married to this headmaster of a very, very prestigious boarding school in New England for about 30 years. And one day the FBI come knocking on her door and they tell her that there's an active investigation being built against her husband by five former students from 30 years prior. Now, the FBI want her to work with them against her husband without him knowing. So essentially, she has this you know, decision to make. Does she help them and uh, you know, destroy her relationship with her husband, who she's loved for 30 years? Or does she kind of become ignorant and you know, not help them and, and keep living the life that she has been living? So you know, no spoilers, but she ultimately decides to help them. And she has to sleep in the same bed as you know, this man who's being accused of rape by five different students without him knowing. So the story is, you know, it's very, it's very personal for this woman and it's, uh, it's really thrilling. And at the end of the day, it's, it's also something that I think people get a little angry reading because it's a very true story. And in fact, uh, the Spotlight team found that there are 67 different boarding schools in New England with at least one sexual assault allegation between a member of faculty and a student. So this story is very relevant. Uh, this report only came out five years ago. I only wrote the book one year ago. And it's been released for three months and reception has been quite good so far. I think that's going to be very interesting for a lot of people to hear, because when you think of like the all the priest scandals and the Catholic Church scandals, do you think all that should happen in the 80s? But you're saying this is like pretty recent. Yeah. So, I mean, this stuff definitely happened in the 80s. You know, this story part. Part of it takes place in the 90s, so the way the story is structured is it jumps between past and present, between when the, you know, the woman of the story first met her husband, who was the headmaster, and then it jumps forward to present day when the investigation is kind of really heating up. So you get to see you know, what actually happened in the past versus what is happening now and what is being told to her through the FBI. So it's definitely, I mean, it's still super relevant. I put, you know, when I was doing my research, I reached out to a lot of people I know that went to boarding schools in Massachusetts. You know, I went to Northeastern University. A lot of kids that I was friends with went to, you know, went to boarding schools for four years in a hundred mile radius, you know, where all of these stories take place. And uh, the things that I heard were absolutely shocking. I mean, things that are happening in like 2015, you know, things that are definitely still happening to today. But, you know, back in the 90s, back in the 80s, you know, there weren't really cell phones, there was no internet. And what's really scary is, you know, these students were being assaulted by members of faculty and really had no way of contacting their parents. They couldn't leave the schools, couldn't contact their parents. They had no internet. They didn't have phones to like, to really, you know, text, you know, someone close to them at night. You know, they were, they were alone and, and they were prey and the, these, you know, members of faculty were very much predators. So. Now, how did you first get in touch with the woman who told you the story very interesting so, and, and sorry to cut you off she throughout the book remains nameless correct yeah totally nameless uh, and the reason for for that being so is there are actually a lot of ongoing lawsuits involved you know when you read the book you'll understand why um boarding schools are traditionally kind of like an old boys club now i'm sure that's changing a little bit as we're kind of progressing in the 21st century but historically speaking very much old boys club you know especially in new england the headmasters and the board of, the board of uh, faculty you know they they all kind of know each other no matter what the school is you know it's a very very connected kind of industry so i think um you know in terms of i'm sorry i completely went off on a tangent what was your how did you first get in touch with the woman? Yeah. So in terms of how I got in touch, they're very, very um, crazy. So this woman, before she even met the guy, was friends with my mom. They, they used to work together in a bar. And, you know, like four years ago or something, they were just randomly out at a grocery store. And my mom bumped into her and was like, hey, you know, how's life? And she's like, well, you know, fucking terrible. Uh, and this is why. And my mom came home and she was like, Killian, like you have to write this story. Because at the time I was writing my second book 
And, uh, and she's like, Jesus Christ, like, you have to write this story. This is the craziest thing I've literally ever heard. She told me kind of like the Cliff Notes version. And it kind of sat with me for a couple of years. And then the, the pandemic happened and I was just doing nothing. I was like, you know what, like, why don't you reach out to her and see if she'd be open to me writing the book. And, you know, sure enough, she was. So that's kind of how we got put in touch. And, uh, and it was really just kind of that connection. Like, it's not like she's my mom's best friend or anything. They, they just worked together 30 years ago in a bar. And so then what was the like gathering information process like for you sat down with her for a couple of weeks or? Yeah. So I was actually in Los Angeles <clears throat> and she was on the East coast and I would call her three times a week for two hours at a time, sometimes three hours and I would interview her. So I would come to each session with a specific theme or specific topic in mind. And we would just sit down for three hours and I would just let her talk and I would just write notes the entire time. I would hardly jump in with any questions. I would just say, you know, this is obviously very personal for you. You know, this is your first time doing this. Honestly, it was my first time really sitting down with someone and kind of extracting information to build a story. So I just said, tell me everything and I'll, I'll make note of everything and then I'll just kind of conjure up the story and, you know, in my mind and I'll, I'll turn it into a, kind of a, a narrative that, that flows like a book. And that's exactly how we did it. How did you make her trust you initially? I feel like this would be such a crippling thing to tell people about like, hey, like my husband is a fucking monster. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I ask myself that sometimes. I think um I think it is partly because the way we kind of first started talking, we we were very we acknowledged the elephant in the room. We knew how difficult it was going to be for her. We knew how awkward it was going to be for her to tell me all this stuff. And I think the best way I thought was to do it um, was to just ease into it. So the first two sessions, we didn't even talk about like sexual assault or rape or anything like that. We talked about like the early days in the relationship. We talked about their children. You know, we talked about what life is like living at a boarding school when you're not a student there, like when you're a member of faculty or if you're married to a member of faculty. So I kind of got like all the ne necessary context for you know, boarding school life, I understood the setting, I understood the type of people that go there, I understood like kind of how the institutions work. And then by session three or four, I kind of built up a level of trust and uh, and was just like, all right, now tell me all the shitty stuff. And uh, yeah, and then for the next like two months, we talked about some of the worst uh, things I've ever heard in my life. But I think in a way it was really therapeutic for her as well. It was kind of the first time she'd actually spoken about it to anyone other than a journalist at Spotlight, a member of the FBI or a therapist. Um, so I think it actually turned out quite well for both of us that we really sat down and ironed all this stuff out. Obviously for her, for, for that therapeutic element and for me for, you know, being able to write a story that was cohesive and had all of the relevant details. Yeah, I could imagine it'd be pretty cathartic for her if she was just like bottling it in forever. Yeah. But what value besides that does she gain from this? You know, I think the way I have interpreted that is she's been living in like a hurricane of chaos for like five or six years now. And like every day has been worse than the, than the next. Like it's almost as if like every single day a new piece of information would come out about her husband and she would learn something that she never knew. And, you know, it would just destroy her. Like, it was just, like, literally, that's why it's called Death by a Million Papercuts. It's like every single day there was something really small that would, you know, would cut her. And, you know, Death by a Million Papercuts, you know, when you get your millionth papercut, like, you're fucking bleeding. Like, you are bleeding. And that's how this woman felt, you know, basically right up until, like, last year. That's how this woman felt. Like, every single day somebody was asking her a question. This guy was, you know, doing something, whether it was like reaching out to their children and, you know, not acknowledging the situation at hand. And, you know, it, it, it was really, really terrible for her. So I think the benefit of, of the book for her is that, you know, now the story's kind of out there, like the story does exist. And I don't think people are judging her quite as hard as she judges herself because, you know, it's a, it's a shitty thing. Like she was married to this guy for 30 years and then 30 years go by and she finds out that during the early days of their relationship, this guy was assaulting students. Like, that's horrible. And I think a lot of people, you know, would really jump to blaming themselves first. 
obviously she didn't do anything wrong, but she probably was like, how the hell did I not see any of the signs? Why did I stay married to this guy? So I think the book being like tangible and real and people having a chance to read her story without realizing who she is and saying, wow, I feel bad for this person. I think it settles with her quite well. I think, um, you know, I think she finally, or at least I hope is, is realizing that she could have done nothing. You know, her husband was a total sociopath who gaslit her and manipulated her and not only her, but like the system as well and, and students and, and their parents for, for years. So I think that's the benefit for her to have this book, like be a real thing. Now that the book's out, has have any of the victims or anyone involved with the case reached out to you? No, um, nobody's reached out to me. There was one woman, uh, I was in Boston and there was one, um, one woman who is around my age, a couple years older than me, who was kind of um, a victim at, at a school. Now, I say kind of because, you know, she very much was so, but not at this school and not to the same degree. And I think she really sympathized with the material in the book. And she kind of told me some stories about what happened at her school. And, um, you know, long story short, essentially, she was hooking up with a, with a teacher and the school found out and they kicked her out of school and kept him there because it was easier for her to be kicked out of school than to get rid of a teacher and explain why they were getting rid of the teacher. So as for the actual victims uh, kind of involved in this book, nobody's reached out to me. The victims have all had their names changed, so they, they probably wouldn't even realize. Um, but other victims from other cases at other schools have you know, taken a little bit of notice. Why would you choose to write a book on this? Like, why would you want to just, like, take a deep dive on, like, some of the worst parts of humanity? Uh, Especially if you want to be a screenwriter. Yeah, I think, um, I just think the story is just so relevant and so interesting that I'd be a fool not to write it. Like, it's, it really is, like, I'm not just saying this because, like, I, I wrote a book about it, but, like, the actual true story is is literally, like, probably the best story I've ever heard in my life. Like there are twists, there are turns, like the characters are, apart from like the main one, are basically all pieces of shit who are like manipulative and they, you know, are very duplicitous. Like they show you one side, but then they act completely way on, on, you know, kind of on the back end. And our protagonist like really doesn't realize like she is, you know, she has her world built for her by her husband. She's living in, you know, she's living in like a fake reality essentially. And I just find that so goddamn interesting. But I, what I find most interesting about it, and it's actually a line in the book, like I just loved it so much. It's like, picture it as like the husband, you know, the house that they live in is like a glass house. He built them a glass house and this is her reality. But then when the FBI show up and, and kind of reveal the truth to her, it's almost like the FBI are giving her a stone. So she has a stone and she's living in a glass house. If she wants, she could fucking hurl that stone, break the glass house and escape. And that's kind of her whole mindset in the book. Like, you know, she could stay in this reality and live the happy, you know, loving life with her husband and children that she's always wanted. Or, you know, she could take that stone and, you know, experience what true reality is like. And that's why it's so interesting to me is like, this is like a really real situation. And it's not just women. It's, I'd say it's mostly women, but it's women and men. And, you know, I think it's, it's um, you know, it's relevant. Like the, she was like oppressed by someone that she loved and, it's a common thing and yeah. And I also think it, trans it would translate very easily to screen, which is also why I like it. I am very much a screenwriter. I've written three books, but um, my writing is, is very much adept to, to the screen. It's very punchy, it's really fast. Um, you know, I don't really linger on, on plot beats for too long. It, it moves like a movie, it's very fast. People have even read this in like two hours. That's like the amount of time someone would, would take to sit down and watch a movie. So the ultimate goal for this is definitely to, you know, adapt it into a film. Do you ever worry like you being such a vocal spokesperson about this fucked up story that someone from the damn Illuminati is going to come and like slit your throat at night? I hope they do. That, well, maybe not slit my throat, but I hope that I get a bit of i uh... I'm not even being facetious. Do you understand what I mean though? Connor, I, my entire life, <clears throat> I have always wanted to be a private detective, right? <laughs> I've always wanted to be a private detective because it's cool as shit. <laughs> 
Now, I love movies with like private detectives and all that sort of stuff. I'm a movie kid. Like I've always grown up being like a little bit of like a like a dreamer and like a thinker and all that sort of stuff. And when this story, you know, I first started writing it and I realized like how risky it was, like with all of these lawsuits, it like kind of jacked me up. I was like, I kind of hope that somebody, you know, gives me a call and says, hey, like, we want to talk to you about this book because that's the real shit that actually makes a difference. You know, if nobody was, you know, calling me about this, if this book had no risk or liability involved, who the fuck would want to read it? Because it's just another story at the end of the day. This is a story filled with risk, filled with liability, not just for me, but for the woman involved, for the other characters involved. And you know what? The villain, the antagonist of the story, the husband, he got away with it. Like, he's still out there. I hope he picks up this book. I hope he reads it. And I hope that I hear from someone. Now, in terms of, like, actual liability for me, names, dates, and places have been changed. It's technically fiction. I can't get in trouble with this whatsoever. Um, but that being said, it doesn't mean that the actual people involved, you know, couldn't read it and maybe pick up on some things and be like, wow, you know, somebody's outed me. You know, this is the way people really feel about what I did. And I kind of hope that happens. How do you make the real life protagonist aware of this? Because I feel like that would elicit the response you want, correct? Yeah, exactly. The, in, so, sorry, what do you mean exactly by that? As it, the like dude the, who the book's about, how do you get this in front of his eyes? Oh, I don't know. I think it's going, going to be difficult, but the best way to get it in front of his eyes is to spread the word. Like, it's just to get more people to read it, more people talking about it. I think this story is definitely, you know... It's definitely more appealing to young women, uh, I would say, than, than, than to young men. I think women would really empathize with this character because at the end of the day, you know, she, she went into this relationship thinking that she had found the love of her life and turns out he was just a sociopath and he was just manipulating her for 30 years. And I'm not saying that's something that's going to happen to every single person in the world, but it definitely happens to a lot of people. I think, you know, word will spread because of the relatability. And then ultimately, I kind of hope that uh, it gets so big that he simply can't ignore us. What were the hallmark traits um, in what she explained to you of his sociopathic characteristics? What made him a sociopath? It's a great question. Yeah. And because <clears throat> people use that term so loosely. Yeah. Yeah. So he, what the, the, so. There is like kind of an anecdote behind it that I think should answer the question perfectly is essentially when this was all happening, when she was working with the FBI um, against her husband without him realizing, she was also seeing a therapist and she was really unsure about, you know, and this part isn't in the book, but she was really unsure about how she felt and she was really unsure about, you know, whether she was doing the right thing or not. And uh, so she started seeing a therapist and she started explaining to her how, you know, the husband, first of all, was never around. And when he was around, he would, you know, kind of criticize her for the way that they were like raising their children and, you know, everything that she was explaining to this therapist uh, ultimately made the therapist stop her and go, I think your husband has narcissistic personality disorder, which essentially is the same thing as being a sociopath. And, uh, from there, the protagonist, uh, kind, it was kind of like a bug that was planted in her mind. She started to do her own research on it. And then, um, you know, she noticed that there were a lot of similarities between the way her husband acted and, and to what the kind of like definition of what this, what this condition like actually, or this disorder is. And so she decided to take him to a therapist, not the same one, and they diagnosed him on the spot. Turns out, you're not supposed to do that. Um, and I actually am not sure why. Uh, you're not she, supposed to do what? You're not supposed to tell someone with narcissistic personality disorder that they have narcissistic personality disorder. I'm not 100% sure why. Um, this is kind of, uh, I guess, it's something that I wouldn't feel 100% confident like explaining. However, the way I interpreted it was that this person was essentially saying that, you know, this guy, like, he can't really feel feelings. He can't really emote for people, even the ones that are closest to him. And the way that he kind of gets his kicks and the way that he kind of, you know, energizes himself is through those loved ones. So when he's feeling, you know, when he's feeling, like, down or when he is, 
you know, not in a good headspace. Like he sucks the life out of his his family, the ones closest to him, to kind of get to where he needs to be. Now I know that is a little vague, um, but in terms of like in terms of like the things that he would do to his wife like he would cheat on her ruthlessly and then when she was like coming close to to finding out he would like gaslight the fuck out of her and basically like say that she was the problem and that she's crazy and all that sort of stuff he would you know do even more terrible things like he would never hit her but he would like emotionally abuse her and like if he got really really mad he would like stand in front of her and he would like swing his hand and like stop it like an inch from her face and because like it's kind of the same thing as hitting her like all the fear is still there but the bruise isn't there so she couldn't go and say oh my husband's hitting me because you know people were always coming up to her being like oh my god your husband is so in love with you he, he always talks about you like he always talks about how great you are meanwhile behind closed doors he's torturing the shit out of her Jesus. Fuck. Yeah. Now, this is somewhat irrelevant, but are you familiar with his upbringing and his backstory? A little bit. Yeah. Okay. Because I asked that, it's like, is a narcissist developed over time or are you born with those traits? I So the research that I did and the um, kind of story that I got from from our protagonist, from, from his wife, was that it usually develops in the ages of, ages of like three to five. So you're not really born with it, but you kind of are. Like it's developed before you're like five years old. Now, as for his upbringing, I don't know the ins and outs, um, but there is a chapter in the book, which I would say is the most vulgar chapter. The parts that I do, do know about his upbringing are pretty grim. He was born into a household with, you know, several sisters, uh, no brothers. He was the only boy. His parents, like, cheated on each other ruthlessly, and they would, like, bring their partners home. Uh, I believe there were, like, they would throw, like, sex parties. And, like, when he was, like, 10 years old, he would, like, walk in from school or walk in from, like, practice, and there'd be, you know all these like 40, 50 year old people just, you know, getting ready to like, you know, bang in his house. Like some, some guy was going to be banging his mom like 15 minutes after he got home from soccer practice and he was going to be in the next room and he'd have to hear us. And that's kind of the way he grew up. Um, that being said, like I didn't interview him. I, I wasn't able to interview him. I, I don't know if, you know, there's more to it or less to it, but that is the kind of story that was told to me. And that was kind of the justifying reason behind him being the way that he is that being said um that those were his younger years his teenage years i'm sure um were filled with kind of a lot of both positive and negative development that led to him doing these things that he did in his like mid to late 20s it's fucked up but does that make you empathize with him at all you should empathize with him yeah one thing that uh one thing in writing is that you can't judge your characters you can't like you can't judge your villain you can't judge your hero because they're they're characters you know they're they're characters and in a way they're real people obviously this is based on a true story these are real people but if you're judging your characters it's just going to like it's going to come off like a cartoon like it's going to be just like blaringly obvious that this guy is evil in the book he's you know he's got he's got duplicity like he's got two sides to him he's got the side that he shows his his wife and and the public and then he's got um sorry his wife in public and then he's got the side that he shows behind closed doors and uh yeah of course you have to empathize with him um but that doesn't mean he's not a, a piece of shit you know you can empathize with someone and and totally understand where they're coming from but their actions you know you, you can't justify them with with that kind of reasoning so what is his relationship with the kids now are the kids aware of this the kids are <clears throat> aware of this um at present day i do not know what his relationship is like with the kids but um without kind of giving too much away he you know he's he's still out there like he's he's still out there he's still teaching um not in the united states but he's still out there and he's still teaching oh he fleed oh yeah so when it started getting hot he dipped mm -hmm. where'd he go i uh so I can't say the exact Give us the region. country, South America. Okay. Yeah, he's in South America. And uh, yeah, he's still out there. He completely, completely got away with it. That is wild. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. 
and I'm not giving away like the ending by any means. It's the book isn't about the ending. It's it's about the uh, like the journey to the end and and how it kind of, and how his actions affected everyone around him and, and the people around him that loved him, uh, particularly his wife. Now, and, were, uh, were the kids aware that you were interviewing their mom? No. So the mom made this completely private to her, her family. Yes. Yeah. And then and then several months in, she did tell them. And has she like marketed the book at all now that it's out? No. No, no. I but there is a reason behind that. There are still there's still a lot of stuff going on with her that um she you know she isn't able to quite yes. And frankly, I am giving her all the time in the world that she needs. This is an incredibly hard book for her to read, never mind like like you know, handing the copy to, to someone out there. So I'm giving her all the time in the world that she needs. Like, even if she, <clears throat> you know, if she's reading it and she comes across something and she's like, oh, I'm, I'm worried that, you know, uh, I'm worried that somebody is going to, you know, know this is me or, or whatever, you know, I'll, I'll listen to us. And, you know, if she, if she's really worried about it, like I will go in and change it. It's very easy to like change the, the document because Amazon does like print on demand. So it's really easy to change it. It takes like a day, maybe two days. So I'm, I'm very close with this woman. I will do like whatever I can to make sure that she's fully comfortable in this process. But, um, were you letting her proofread it? Yeah. Yeah. Like it, more so just like to see what I wrote. Um, I think she was just interested to see like how the story would kind of like move from like point A to point B to point C. Cause when we spoke, it was all just kind of like all over the place and, like we jumped from like 1985 to like 2005 and then to 2015 and it was all over the place. So I think she's just more so interested in seeing how the story goes from like start to finish. And what has her response been? Did she like it? Yeah, she likes it. Yeah, it's really, <clears throat> really insanely hard thing for her to read. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but she does like it, which is good, which obviously I'm happy about. Now, next steps, what would you like to do with the book? My next steps for the book is, <clears throat> or sorry, my next step is to find a you know a large large publisher i'm you know i'm aiming just really really high with this one um Good. and i want to find a large publisher and i want to do like a you know two birds one stone kind of thing i, I want to sell the film rights to this i know when the woman and i first spoke about this this book you know she was more so interested in in the movie you know she was very interested in the fact that a book was being written about it but you know she wants this to be a movie i want this to be a movie um so when i say that my next step is to find like a, a high you know high level publisher it kind of is that's just you know the avenue that i would like to go down i'd like to be taken really seriously as a writer um, but ultimately, I think this would make a fantastic movie or like a, a mini series or something. And uh, that's ultimately where I would like for this to go. Dreamcast, who's the protagonist played by? Oh, that's such a great question. Well, how old is she in the book? In the book, she will be in her like 40s, like late 40s, like early 50s, perhaps. Um, and I think Amy Adams. No, well, so I would have I would have said Amy Adams, but it, I think it's a little too close to Sharp Objects, um, like to kind of like the vibe of Sharp Objects. Which have you ever seen that I miniseries? Haven't. It's really good, but it's like the vibe is really similar. Like it's like kind of like eerie and like sinister. And, and you like, think it'd be redundant like, to cast? Yeah, right? and like suburban and like behind closed doors. Like I think I think it'd be a little uh, redundant. I could see someone like kind of like her though. Like a, uh, let's see, like uh, I or I don't know. Just watch like Tar, so Kate Blanchett, I think, could be like a pretty awesome protagonist. I think she would kill us. Uh, and as for the antagonist, I think you got to get someone with like a strong jaw, like John Hamm or something. Like a guy who, when people see him, like they're drawn to him. Like they, they're, because the, the antagonist, like people are really drawn to him. Like he's, he's charismatic. Charismatic, really handsome guy, like total, total sociopath, but like most sociopaths kind of are like that to kind of like mask who they really are. And I think, uh, I think John Hamm could do killer job with that this whole time you've been describing the book i've been thinking javier bardem javier bardem would be <laughs> incredible you feel well, me on that one liam <laughs> yeah is he argentinian javier bardem he's spanish. He's, he's spanish okay yeah he would be incredible but he's all he's already played like the the greatest villain in movie history what no country for old man yeah like he's already he's already done it i i would like i would like to give the the role to you know someone who i think like could move into it quite well. I think John Hamm could like excel in something like that. But that being said, maybe Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. Wrong place, wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time. <laughs> yeah. Back to being serious. Sorry. <laughs>
Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, apart from that, like, I haven't like necessarily thought about casting because when I usually when I write, I think about like obviously what the characters look like, and obviously I relate that to people that I know, and usually those are actors or actresses. But with this, like, I knew what everyone looked like. I knew, you know, for the most part, how everyone acted. I knew their like mannerisms. So the characters in this book are like totally, totally based on like the real people. Now, in most stories like this most quote-unquote sociopaths have a group that enables them. Did he have anyone who was working for him that kind of let him do this? Like, I'm relating this to the whole, like, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky thing. Yeah. Do you yeah. understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, you're, that's, that's a great question because he absolutely did. And they, so the interesting thing was, <clears throat> is, like, they enabled him, but they didn't know to the full extent of what he was doing. So nobody, nobody knew to the full extent of what he was doing with these girls, but there were like, you know, there were red flags like here and there, there were warning signs here and there, like people in, <clears throat> you know, like the secretary's office that he, that he, that, uh, you know, worked under him when he was the headmaster, swept a lot of stuff under the rug. The kind of board of trustees of the school swept everything under the rug. Like that guy, like when he actually got in trouble, like when he got outed, <clears throat> You know, he didn't get fully outed. Like, he didn't get outed by, like, the Boston Globe or, like, Spotlight. Like, his name has never been in a Spotlight article, which is really interesting because they didn't have the full evidence to do so. But when they were, like, this close, when they were, like, this close and word was starting to, like, get out there, it was, like, even in some local papers, it was the board of trustees at, at the school that, you know, helped him get out, that helped him get away with it. Normally, the board of trustees are, like, alumni or, like, parents of some of the students is that yeah who, is that who it was <clears throat> exactly yeah they mostly were i don't know if they were like parents of students but they were mostly like alumni and if they weren't <clears throat> alumni of this school in particular they were alumni of like other prestigious boarding schools in new england so that's why it's kind of like an old boys club because like everything is interconnected now when you were writing the book i'm sure the wife's story was very compelling and believable but you must have vetted your sources somehow right absolutely Be because i'm sure <clears throat> over the course of 20 years of abuse some of the details get a little fucking mixed up absolutely and uh <clears throat> i knew that that was going to be a factor and <clears throat> i also knew that i could only get so much access to the real true story of well of this true story and then also you know the overarching story of like the spotlight investigation that they did into like all of the boarding schools so the way i wrote the book was 100% through the protagonist's eyes through the woman's eyes in doing so she becomes an unreliable narrator which essentially means that what she sees might not actually be what is reality but what's important to the reader is the way that she interprets it and it moves the story from point A to point B because she discovers certain things throughout the story. Like each chapter, she discovers at least one thing about her husband or herself uh, or the boarding school. And uh, it's up to both her and in, in doing so, it's up to the reader to decide whether to believe it or not. So everything in this book is what was told to me by her. And what was told to her was, you know, told to her, sorry, everything that she knows was told to her by her husband, the FBI, spotlight team at the Boston Globe, or members of faculty from the boarding school. So there's so much bullshit that's going to be involved. But I think that's why the story works so well, because there is no, like, there is no, like, happy ending. Like, this is a real, true, like, actual story. Like, a happy ending, yeah, like, you need, you need the truth to come out at a certain point in the book. But... You know, I think the nice thing about this story is like the reader has to make up their mind for themselves. Like they have to figure out what to believe, what not to believe, because the protagonist is going to be doing that as well. So that's why it's so easy to empathize with the character, because you are literally put into her shoes and you have to decide, you know, you have to decide like if if all of this is bullshit or if, you know, if she's actually, you know, being oppressed for the last 30 years. And if if she should take that stone and break out of this glass house. When she started, I don't want to reveal too much about the book, but when she started to get tipped off that this activity was happening, how did she confront her husband? That's a great question. <clears throat> and the actual truth is different than what's in the book. So I'm going to talk about what's in the book. 
um, because it is just like a little bit more cinematic and, uh, you know, it's, it's a little more, yeah, it's a little more cinematic, a little more dramatic, but in the book, uh, she was having a lot of internal conflict uh, with herself. Like she was, she was really fighting herself. Um, she didn't know whether she should confront her husband or not. She hadn't quite found all of the evidence that she needed to find. She had spoken with one of the victims and this victim was someone that, uh, you know, was very much kind of like, like a little flirt in high school and would like always flirt with the husband, like while he was a teacher. So she was always just kind of like, uh, you know, this girl could just be like, a little crazy, a little jealous, and maybe nothing actually happened, or everything that she's saying could have actually happened, and you know this could be the truth. So she uh, one day, you know, she comes home and and the and they have a great night, you know, with the family. It's like her, her husband, the daughters, like they they have a fantastic night. They all cook like pizzas or something, and they have like a movie night. And then she discovers that uh, the husband had been cheating on her with someone that she knew. And that's when she decided to confront him and tell, essentially tell him that she's been working with the FBI. So the catalyst was the fact that her feelings were hurt that she was being cheated on. Yes. And it wasn't the fact that she had all this outstanding possible evidence that her husband was getting with little girls. No, no, no. Well, I wouldn't say that. It was more so like the evidence that he was cheating on her was there. And that was like the final domino. It wasn't necessarily like all of this stuff like didn't, bother her or, or whatever and then like this something like personal to her yeah, bothered her. yeah yeah but it was kind of like the last domino and it was like the millionth paper cut you know what i mean it was like that is like when she started bleeding like when she found out that uh her husband like didn't even like truly love her you know because he had been cheating on her then that was like the final paper cut so peel back so she confronted him yeah she confronted him after she found out that uh he had been cheating on her she confronted him about the investigation and said this is what i've been doing like is this fucking true did she scan his face when she brought it up to him yeah and then he you know being the excellent like sociopathic actor that he is denied us like denied us until she revealed that in like a later chapter like reveals that you know she gets a piece of information that is you know fact like you know he did these things and um then she confronts him again and and uh, that's when he admits to her that he like like did do all those things he um, admitted it yeah he admitted it to only to her really yeah and what was that like for her did she describe it that must have she like did yeah the whole world on her head yeah it did and uh she just like what a traumatic like period of of her life um she just you know how how could it not be like she's just pure pure trauma like so much anger so much denial like she went through all the stages i'm sure um and i i personally couldn't even imagine i mean words can only do it so much justice like obviously she was fucking pissed um and she you know blamed herself and this and that and whatever but um i would imagine that it was very much like just like a blurry chaos and she kicked him out kicked him out of the house and uh yeah, and then I don't want to like reveal any more about mm -hmm. about anything after that because it does like in the story like it really picks up and it gets really interesting um, how it kind of like all ends. But well, imagine that happening and then you realizing how like how deep into their marriage was this? This is like thirty years in. Imagine being like, "Wow, I've been getting conned my entire life." Yeah, like it. Like she's running back every single good memory she had with this dude, being like, "Wow, he was not that." Exactly, and that's why the book is written in kind of like past and present. So some chapters will be in the past, some will be present day, and, and the purpose of that is so that those past chapters, it's, it's almost like she's looking back on a memory and trying to like decipher, you know, what actually was like happening at that time. Now, I don't want this to seem condescending whatsoever, and I know you have a relationship with the woman, so if I come across this way, I apologize, but did she seem clueless? No, um, she did not, and I think she, so how I would describe her her character as like a person, um, just in real life, is she is like the most trusting, loving person that I think I've ever met or ever had like the pleasure of speaking with. Um, the reason why I say that is that she's just like so pure 
as a person. Like, she really, really is. Like, she's so pure as a person. She just, like, never... Like, she doesn't even bash this guy. Like, when I was interviewing her, she she did not say, like, like a, a bad word about him that wasn't, like, like, fact in her eyes. Like, she literally just told me, like, what happened. She wasn't like, this guy's a piece of shit. Like, he, you know, he fled the country. Like, he's a, he's a fucker. Like, he, she didn't say anything like that. Like, she is a lovely person, like, pure. She hold like, the only kind of, like, negative thoughts that she holds about this guy is, is exactly like you said, like, he fucking conned her for 30 years, like, and still she's doing okay. Like, still she is able to take care of her daughters. Still she is able to try get back into new relationships. Like, I have a lot of respect for this woman. Like, she, you know, she absolutely, like, just baffles me in, in how she is, like, just going about life because it's it's you know it's just so pure but that being said um 30 years is a long time um 30 years is a long time i think she loved him so much that even when she did see red flags she forced herself to be clueless she forced herself to become ignorant because she probably just didn't realize the weight of what was happening and she said you know what like i love this guy so much I'm willing to sweep this under the rug. Like, and I'll give you an example. Um, when they were younger, like in their 20s or maybe early 30s, he, uh, she suspected of him like cheating, uh, cheating on her with, you know, just some woman uh, that like they both knew. And yeah, you know, he definitely was like, he, he cheated on her like a shitload, like a ton. He's a priest, um, right? No, he wasn't a priest. He was a headmaster. Got it, okay. Yeah, over 30 years, like he, you know, he, she confronted him at the end of the, the marriage. She confronted him and I think he revealed that he had slept with like X number of women or this woman and that woman and this woman. And what was the number? I don't know the number. That's, <clears throat> but that's, that's what happened. Like she, uh, she kind of just like exploded and was like, oh, well, what about this girl? What about this girl? Like, did you fuck her too? And he was like, yeah, like, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. So she had her suspicions, but she loved him so much and l just always wanted like, like a f real family. Cause like her upbringing wasn't great either. Like she grew up in like, like a Boston Irish, like home in like a not great part of the city with like Where? 10, um, She's like, healthy. uh, no, not Southie. Like, and, um, and all she ever wanted her entire life was just like a loving, like tight family. You know, she wanted a husband that, you know, was good with kids. Like she wanted the children, like she wanted to be the mom. And, uh, and then she thought she got us. And then, you know, turns out it was all just like a, like a huge lie. Is she super religious? No. She's not? No. And the husband was? No, neither. It neither. was a Catholic school. Yeah, Catholic school, but neither were super religious. <clears throat> I asked that because I wonder if um, she questioned her faith after all this went down. But, she, but sure, she, she did. Yeah, I I know that she's not insanely religious. Um, I think she definitely was raised Catholic. She definitely was raised going to church every Sunday. Uh, that being said, I don't think she kind of like maintained that uh, faith like throughout her whole life. But I really wouldn't be surprised if like, when all this was happening, like, how could she not? Like, you know, unless she was just like full blown atheist, which I, I don't think she is. Like, how could she not kind of like let, lie awake in bed being like, why is this happening to me? Like, all I ever wanted was just like, like a family. And now like, you know, it's my family that is destroying me. It's kind of ironic. Like, So why didn't the Boston Globe release anything on this? Didn't have enough evidence. Yeah. But they, how long were they building a case for? So they, they were building a case for a couple years. So it was like the, sorry, the FBI and the Boston Globe over the course of like two to three years were building their own individual cases. The Spotlight team were building like a big, massive case against like all of the boarding schools that were doing it. The FBI were kind of um, more so like fine tuning or like focused in on like individual um, people. And the reason why this person and this school, <clears throat> for the most part, was not named in like any of their major investigations was because they actually paid off uh, the victims. Uh, to my knowledge, they, they at least paid off a couple of them and they really kind of did what they could to sweep it under the rug. Now, I will follow up in saying that I wasn't able to, I wasn't able to 
kind of investigate that side of things. It was really difficult. And I also thought that it, it didn't really serve much purpose to the woman's part of the story, which I wanted this to be 100% about her and not so much about the overarching like scandals that were happening. So I'm sure there were other reasons why it wasn't included, but it definitely was a result of like not enough evidence because these girls were kind of ultimately either paid off or scared off not to talk. So rewinding a little bit. So your mom meets this woman in the grocery store. And, and how long do they talk for? Just like a little bit? Nah, my mom can talk. My, my dad always says my mom can talk for Ireland because she, you know, she fucking, she loves to talk. Like she is an absolutely lovely woman. Um, I love my mom so it's much. Genetic. But like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love my mom so much. But, uh, you know, like if you're with her in a grocery shop and she sees one of her friends, like you're going to be there for half an hour. Yeah, but like, I mean, okay, so like, <laughs> cool, they talk for a little bit, but then you probably had no concept that the story was this deep. No, geez, not at all. No, my, my mom just came home and she's like, you have to hear this story. And we kind of sat down and uh, she told me like, like the cliff notes, she gave me like, like the overarching details of the story. She told me like, yeah, this guy, like he was the headmaster of boarding school. And, you know, he was caught for, I think at the time, my mom thought that he didn't get away with it. And he was, you know, because I think, I think back then he he was still might have might have still been like in the country, um. But you know she came back and she was like, <clears throat> this guy like he did this and he did that and like there's boarding schools involved and like this woman and like he cheated on her with like this woman who like the who um my mom's friend knew and it was all like you know it was all just kind of like all over the place and just really like high level, just like, like little bullet points. But for whatever reason, it just really stuck. And I was like, wow, that sounds really interesting. And then just never forgot about it. Like finished my second book. And then I was looking for ways to write a new book. And I thought about this story, just decided to reach out to her. And, and, you know, my first meeting with her, I kind of got her to give me the overview um, of the entire story. And once she did that, I was like, yeah, I'm going to write this book. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're about 50 minutes in. I want you to just really evaluate. And Liam, you could probably be a, a good judge of character here, but is there anything else you want me to ask so you can get this covered? Liam, you I got know any, you, uh... you got plenty of great stuff, though. I think we got a lot of stuff. <clears throat> oh, I would. I would like to. So can you ask me, like, what other. Oh, no, I already did that. Um, yeah. I it think felt, it what felt is your. Organic kill. It did feel good. Yeah. Um, maybe just because I would like to talk about <clears throat> Aurelia for a couple minutes. Or, or well, what is Aurelia? I just want to talk about maybe something to do with like screenwriting. Like, what am I worried? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Do you want this to be professional? Can Liam come up here and ask it? No, I wanted to get Liam. Uh, okay, sick. Up here. Do you want to? Do you want to come in? No, no. Let's, let's let's swap spots. Let's swap spots. Get in here, man. Get in. Come on. Yeah, let's get you on the Hollywood mic, brethren. Come on. It's all no, good. It's, it's all you, good. You, Irish stallions. You, they, uh, paper cuts is already done. This is. Okay. We'll just do. We'll just do one thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of course, yeah. Oh, cool. Thank Extremely you. Interesting. I love it. All right. Thanks very much. How's that? <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. We're all good? Cool. Well, we've got Liam on the mic now. Yeah. So uh, I'm replacing um, Connor. Um, I'm just off the boat. Um, I'm Killian's friend from Ireland, and uh, I have a writing history with Killian. Um, obviously, I've read the book. Um, it was a brilliant book, br a great way to portray the story. It's interesting to hear him talking about that, because um, I obviously knew a lot of the background. He told me a bit about it, but I didn't really uh, know to what extent um, she was attached to the project with how much she poured out into you. So uh, I think it's really impressive that you were able to do her story justice um, without, you know, absolving anyone of any sort of responsibilities or anything like that. So, cool. yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and Liam and I 
have been right. Me and Liam and I have been writing for like eight years or something now. Yeah, it's been about eight. We were maybe about nine years, maybe seventeen or eighteen when we started. Sixteen or seventeen when we started in school. Yeah, um, it's been a long time. I, yeah, so. Liam is usually like the first person that I ever send my book to, like or sorry, ever send anything to. Um, I actually thought it was really funny. Uh, so like Liam is probably like you're probably like one of the best writers I've, I've like our age that like I've ever <laughs> that I've ever had like the pleasure of reading the same, right? and uh, and like we work really well together and it was funny I uh, like my first two books um, you know Liam was like the first person to to read them and he uh, you know after he would read the first and the second one he was like oh yeah like this you know it's pretty good like you know you should maybe think about doing this or, or doing that and uh, and then after we read this one, the reason why I knew it was it was kind of going to be good was like, he goes, Jesus, this is actually fucking pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> he is he is so for him to say like that he he thought it was good like that was kind of like the first thing that like gave me confidence about putting the book out there. So yeah, not to shit on any of your work or anything <laughs> in the past. Um, I've enjoyed all your writing, but like. Um, I particularly noticed with this book um, how your writing's improved over the years and how you have um, you have maybe reflected on some of the other stuff that you have put out there and said, you know, how can I improve that? And uh, I think all that really hard work and serious research in this in this piece in particular uh, is really really evident when you when you read it, and you can get that from the from the opening couple of chapters, like right away. Um, what I found interesting reading the book, um, I know you spoke a little bit about um, the protagonist's inner conflict um, and the sort of turmoil she's going through, but it's really evident early on um, that she's juggling between sort of evidence that's presented to her or things that are really in her face that should be red flags and trying to talk herself down, trying to talk herself out of that, trying to avoid any sort of confrontation and argument and that and her character arc then builds really well from that. So the groundwork and everything up was really, really impressive, yeah. Cool, mm -hmm. thanks. Yeah. yeah, you're welcome. <clears throat> and uh, well, Liam and I are also working on something together at the moment as well. We've been, what, manifesting on this for like two or three years. Yeah. I would say I'll yeah. let, let Liam kind of give give the, the spiel, but this is something that like we are, you know, just us two, like pre-pandemic, we're really hoping to to write and then ultimately shoot or or do something with us. Uh, so now we're both living in LA. Liam moved here three weeks ago, and it's probably the most exciting thing that's happened like in to the, us in, in the years. last couple of years. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so that's for sure. Yeah, I'll let yeah. Liam give like the spiel of uh, of our idea. Well, uh, I don't exactly have like an elevator pitch prepared, but. Me and Killian would have uh, a deep, deep interest, particularly in sort of 1970s era crime films, whether they're American films or whether they're French, Italian, you know, that's kind of the genre that we've always been interested in. So we've kind of looked at how can you make that style of film in a modern setting? And that's something that we've ruminated over over multiple uh, scripts that we've written together over the years, yeah. something that we've tried to capture uh, with this particular idea. Um, how we do, how we kind of set that up is we have an Irish character, and for one reason or another, which is explained early on, that character has to flee Ireland and they happen to land themselves in LA, not dissimilar to our yeah. own background, <laughs> and they, of course, become a sort of fish out of water character. And this is all happening in the backdrop of a missing mob boss's daughter and a serial killer on the loose and how this person has to sort of figure out the ropes in a very short amount of time. Yeah. If um, Quentin Tarantino were Irish, he probably would have written he this. He probably story. would have written this yeah. already, yeah. So thankfully he wasn't. Yeah. That's that's next on the docket for us, I would say. And yeah. That's and the biggest focus. Obviously, like that's when you say the idea out there and you talk about it, you realize, you know, that's that that's going to be a, a big project to undertake. So at the moment, obviously, the idea would be coming up with one part of the script, whether it's a scene or whether it's a manufactured scene to capture the 
sort of aesthetic the, the teams the yeah. motif and have something make something ourselves while while we're out here yeah yeah exactly mm. so yeah you'll be hearing from us in the next few hopefully, months hopefully i would say a little soon. bit more yeah, on that very yeah, soon. definitely want to pursue us yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely cool I think yeah i think yeah connor yeah, yeah i think we i'm about ready to go yeah we're all good oh it was great nice experience they make them the same as they do at home, so uh, so awesome. Too. <laughs> Good work, Brett. Okay, killed two things you didn't discuss, Liam. Thank you. The seat is a, uh, it's like an inferno now. It's quite warm. Um, where to get the book? Cool. Boom. Tell them. So you can get the book on Amazon. Amazon is the only place <clears throat> to get it currently. Um, if you just search "Death by a Million Paper Cuts," it'll it'll pop right up. Um, and yeah, I'm hoping to get it into like a few other places in in the near future. But for right now, Amazon.com. Hold it up. Just give that give that marquee shot. This camera over here. This camera. Yep. There we go. Let yeah. Me, there we go. Death by a Million Paper Cuts. <laughs> Amazon. Amazon. A true story. Yep. I don't even. Felt a little nervous making jokes this whole time because it was so dark and grim. <laughs> uh, yeah, really. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of regretting that Jonah Hill joke, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> we can cut that out. Yeah, no, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, you can keep it, whatever. Um, okay, now let me just give the, the classic podcast wrap-up. Do you remember how we do that? Oh. Now, listen, this is going to be on, on our podcast page. So, guys, if you are listening to this, I know I've been doing the snake pit updates quite often from the apartment. Go get Killian's book. Killian helps produce pretty much everything with us out here. It's me and him pulling all the fucking events together. He's operating everything. He's running the team. He's a hustler. Clearly, he's passionate about this. And additionally, Killian and I, and Liam, I don't know if you've seen the script yet, we will be producing and definitely shooting the next actual Golden Deer production this year. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping we shoot it by June. I hope so, too. Did you see it yet? No, not looking yet. You saw the edits? I did. Great. Okay. Yep. Anyway, um, this is how we start in the podcast. Hi, I'm Killian Dunn, and this is my golden hour. Hi, I'm Killian Dunn. That was my golden hour. <clears throat> Let me hype you yep. up. You got to look into the camera, though. Slate towards the camera. Hold on. All right. Deep inside the snake pit. There's snakes everywhere. <laughs> it's actually, it's terrifying. <laughs> but we're here. We're surviving. Sebastian, thank you. Liam, you're a great guy. Kill, take it away, brethren. Hi, I'm Killian Dunn, and this is my golden hour. Hi. Killian Dunn, that was my golden era. Boom. Thank you. Corporate handshake. Good work, brethren. Corporate handshake. All right, Sebastian. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Sebastian. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait. Was that not it? Hey, enter. Just, you forgot to enter. <laughs>